You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geyser. This month, we're reading The Loving Push by Temple Grandin and Deborah Moore. Let's get into it. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Laura. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club. We are discussing Chapter 3 of The Loving Push by Temple Grandin and Deborah Moore today. This chapter is called How to Break Your Child's Habits, A Necessary Step So Your Child Keeps Moving Forward. They start out by saying it is just excruciating for parents to watch children with autism go through emotional distress. And when they're young, that can be major meltdowns out in public. In high school, it might be that they slam the door shut on you and just go off and play video games. But the point is that bad behaviors become habits that are really ingrained. And Behaviors that become bad habits need to be broken because they don't serve you or your child. So then they start talking about how parents are not helping their kids become independent because they're doing too many things for them. And they say, if you're always doing things for your child with autism, you're inadvertently creating feelings of ineptness and impotence. So you're sending the message to the child that they can't do these things for themselves. They always need help. But making a child handle tough situations on their own or as independently as possible will help that child develop a sense of self-agency. They then describe that there are some big differences between neurotypical teens and autistic teens. They said with autistic teens, it can be hard to even find a dividing line between childhood and adolescence because they might be so stuck in their routines, they might be so happy with how things are going that they just keep the same interests and they don't really have a desire to do those typical adolescent things like going out to parties, getting a driver's license. They end up just having a really different type of struggle in high school than neurotypical teens do. So even though a teen on the spectrum might outwardly despise things like going out to parties or things that other teens are engaging in, it might be the case that underneath it all, they are kind of lonely and are craving that social interaction. The authors want you to make sure that they are socializing, not just closing themselves off. And they say that's fine if it's not with other teens, because engaging with teens is not a critical life skill. So if your kid gets along better with adults, it would be okay for them to just be having their socialization be at church with some of the members of the congregation, even if they're not socializing with their peers, as long as they are socializing with somebody. Yeah, I do like the emphasis that they put on making sure the child is engaged in activity with at least someone. I know it sometimes seems hard for kids to find groups that resonate with them. I would always encourage teens who are on the spectrum when I was at the high school to look for clubs or something that focused on their interest. So we had a computer club and sometimes at lunch they would have like um, Mario Kart competitions. I think there was a video game club. So I was always encouraging kids like get out there, try to find a group that might be a good fit for you. And at least you tried, you know, but taking the steps to join these kinds of clubs might've been difficult for some students. So as long as they have someone in their life to hang out with, They're not completely isolated. It's probably a good idea. I like that they kind of open it up to like, it doesn't really matter who, as long as they're getting that social interaction. 
Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, when you're an adult, it's not necessary that you relate to kids or teens if you don't want to. If you don't want to work with kids or teens, you don't want to, I mean, who knows if you even want to have children yourself. These aren't skills that are necessary to get by. So, you know, a lot of the students I've worked with who are autistic, their parents always say, well, he gets along great with adults, <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Adults just appreciate their humor and their interests more than some of their peers might. So they're definitely kinder, for sure. And that makes a big difference. Yeah. So then they go into talking about their autism diagnosis. And maybe you have some input on this, Adrian, because you did work at the high school level. The authors say that hopefully as an adolescent, you've already been discussing with your child that they are on the autism spectrum. But if they haven't been diagnosed yet, maybe you haven't had that discussion. But if you haven't talked to your child about what makes them different, they've already realized it for themselves, most likely, that they're different from their peers. And without the accurate information from you, they've probably explained their differences to themselves in ways that are judgmental or demoralizing. And this made me think of the whole brain child again, where when kids are trying to make sense of information... Without that factual information from you, they could create something with their brain and explanation that maybe isn't accurate and maybe isn't fair to them. And for me, it made me remember just one kid I had who was in the third grade and his placement was in an autistic special day class, but he was mainstreaming in general ed for the majority of the day, more than 50% of the day. And he was really starting to see the differences between himself and his peers. He was being called weird. And I know in speech therapy, we started just talking about it a lot and focusing on all the things that make him more interesting and how sometimes it's cool to be weird and it's boring to just be normal (laughs) and like everybody else. But that was kind of unique at the elementary level. There isn't a whole lot of awareness yet that you're different. Yeah, I mean, I definitely do have some insight on this. I've encountered so many parents at the high school level who were just unsure how to talk with their teens about their diagnosis of autism. I had one memorable family who wanted me to talk to their child about it and introduce the concept. I would say overall, it's probably not the therapist's job, probably the parent's job. Yeah, and I... I just I can't even tell you how many students where I would say, like, why do you think you're here? Why do you think you're in speech? And they would just have no idea. But the kids who were familiar with their diagnosis, it's almost like they were kind of proud in a way like that we would be talking and they might say, like, well, that's harder for me because I have autism. And I think it just helped them to make sense of their world a little bit more to understand why they were doing things, why they had RSP support why things were harder for them that weren't for other people, you know? So definitely, I think parents really struggle with that. And I like some of the tips in the book. I'm sure we'll get into it. They had some information about how to possibly start that conversation. And I thought they were pretty interesting. Yeah, it makes me think of preschool stuttering too. When three or four-year-olds begin stuttering, the parents natural instinct is not to talk openly about it, not to really acknowledge it. But we know that it's really pretty empowering for the kid. If a kid starts stuttering, it's like their mouth and their brain are betraying them. This thing that 
used to work is suddenly working differently. And if a parent just reacts by kind of like, (gasps) just the kid can see that there's this something going on with the mom, but she's not saying, oh, that's called stuttering. A lot of kids stutter when they're learning how to talk. You know, just that acknowledgement, it kind of makes everything make more sense. And the kid isn't trying to process it all on their own. And I would just think that if you were on the spectrum, it's the same thing where it's really empowering. And maybe as adults, it's so loaded for us because we have so much experience with autism or, you know, even people who aren't speech therapists. So for the parents, it's so loaded. But picture it from your kid's perspective when they don't really know a lot about autism and you have this opportunity to teach them about it, teach them why autism gives them a certain set of strengths, why they're challenged in some areas, and just help them make sense of their world. It's so powerful and important. And I think that we as adults make it a lot more complicated than it needs to be. Oh, yeah. I mean, children are so perceptive. They are noticing differences between themselves and other people. They notice their skin colors are different. They notice their heights are different. They are asking, like, why are my eyes blue and their eyes are brown? So kids are definitely going to know when somebody is sort of outside of the norm. And if it's them, they're definitely going to know. My daughter has some age-appropriate Arctic stuff going on. And she asked me maybe at the age of three, like, why do I talk different than other kids? And, you know, of course, I was prepared to have that discussion and to explain it with her. But kids are really aware and definitely more aware than we give them credit for discussing a diagnosis frequently and early, as early as you can definitely helps to dispel some like tension around it, just like you're talking about. Yeah, definitely. Oh, the authors do have some suggestions. They suggested starting with something in writing or maybe watching a video. And we do see in the book that a few people had really big aha moments when they specifically saw Temple Grandin, either a documentary about her or her speaking. So it can be really helpful to share with them information about other people who are autistic. And maybe if you can't find the words... Someone else can in a video or something like that. All right. So then they talk about how autistic teens might have no desire to get out on their own, have their own apartment, kind of gain that independence because those things are scary and they might be content to just keep everything the same, stay in your house, in their old bedroom, even with their old childhood furniture. So the authors really encourage parents to give them those loving pushes to make sure that this doesn't happen. And they give a story about Temple when she was at boarding school. She wanted to stay in her room on Friday nights when everyone else was at movie night, but the headmaster wouldn't let that happen. And he gave her the choice. Either you can run the projector or you sit in the audience, but staying in your room isn't an option. And, you know, these types of things are important. Just pushing them. Maybe it's uncomfortable for a little bit. Maybe they'll enjoy it. The authors also encourage you to make sure that your child eats every meal with you not eating in their bedrooms because mealtime is important not just for eating but also participating in conversation and taking on responsibility like setting the table, clearing the table, doing the dishes. So those are great opportunities for kids to learn manners and learn how to socialize when they join in at mealtime. In the classrooms that I worked with, the aides would eat with the students or they would supervise the students in the autism classes that I worked with. And they Um. would really be there to support, help with opening things and, you know, for kids who needed it. But also they would kind of stimulate the conversation and make sure the kids were interacting with each other. So I think that at school they 
do a pretty good job with that. Yeah, the high school, it was a little tricky, just depended on the kids' social skills, if they were able to go out and sort of like mingle with the neurotypical peers, or if they would stay like, I'm thinking about a lot of the kids in the mod severe class, they would kind of stay in the classroom. But as long as they were socializing with each other, I felt like that was I mean, I think this is sometimes where also speech therapists step in. I can remember doing an internship at a middle school and the speech therapist who was supervising me, she just took on these life skills with she had a mod severe class. And, you know, she really made sure that the kids could ask for what they wanted in the lunch line. Like we were often in that cafeteria (laughs) walking with the kids and having them talk to the employees in the cafeteria, ask for what they you know, we'd look at the menu beforehand, we'd go over what they were going to order. And, you know, sometimes you do have to be that person that that steps in and makes sure that they're acquiring these skills. Yeah. And then they say that many kids on the spectrum fear adolescence. And I thought this was interesting, because even at the elementary school level, I can remember children as young as third and fourth grade talking about their fears of going to middle school. And I know that just has a lot to do with change. Maybe they've been at this school for four or five years. They don't want to switch to a new school. But then sometimes I also feel like it's the parents that are trying to prepare them by telling them about it even years ahead. And it's kind of creating more fear. So I don't know if that's something where kind of similar to Temple when she was going to go live on her aunt's ranch for the summer. Like, how do you prepare your kid without just putting more fear? You can start preparing them for transitions like to middle school or to high school or to adulthood. But, you know, what what would it take? A visit to the middle school to see the classroom that you're going to be in or meet the teacher or I mean... What could help dispel some of that fear? Yeah, that's a good question. I know that some schools, they'll send the sixth grade class in the spring, you know, at the end of their sixth grade year, like to the middle school to kind of familiarize them or so they can get a tour or meet their counselor or something like that. Definitely, we know that there's a transition IEP when a sixth grader goes to middle school or when an eighth grader goes to high school or a 12th grader goes to transition program. So that's also an opportunity where I think kids should be joining their IEP meetings when they are at least in ninth grade. If it's earlier and they want to, or if they have a say in something, they should be there. But I think in starting in ninth grade, they should be in every IEP meeting because at that point, they're old enough to advocate for themselves. But I guess that's neither here nor there. Um, I would just say, (laughs) yeah, they do have the opportunity to check out the school and you can I would contact a guidance counselor as a parent if I felt like that was necessary. Yeah. But it sort of falls in line with the same thing we were talking about as far as like in our last podcast episode about the menus, right? For going to a restaurant, it's like if you're doing a lot of prep before the event, will that increase anxiety when you don't have time to prepare like that? Yeah. Or in this case, because it's such a big transition and change, maybe it's better. Yeah, for things that are more like a one-time thing, this big move from elementary to middle school or from high school to if you're going to like the city college, you know, those are really big transitions that just happen once. It's not like those are going to be popping up here and there and you're going to be having to deal with it. So the authors do say that, of course, there are some situations where either intellectual ability or mental illness will prevent a child from 
becoming completely independent, but their worry is that a lot of parents now are seeing smaller challenges in their autistic teens as incapacitating limitations. So they assume their child will never be independent and will be on disability funding for the rest of their lives. But really with the right guidance, a lot of these kids could lead really successful independent lives. So the overprotection is really limiting the kids. Just because a teen is comfortable with how things are and is maybe nervous about the unknown and adulthood, it doesn't mean you need to just let them stick with how things are. So don't go easy on them because you're hurting them in the long run. They need your help and they need a loving push. So parents can really go from the protectors to advocates for their kids and then champions and loving pushers. And the authors bring up Brene Brown in her book, Daring Greatly. It's not specifically obvious, you know, it's not about autism, but she worries that children are not learning to handle adversity or disappointment because parents are always rescuing and protecting their kids. They're chronically intervening in their children's lives. And she says that they are inadvertently sabotaging their children's emotional growth. So depriving children of the opportunity to struggle or fail and then recover really robs them of learning the ability to hope. And hope is an attitude that will lead to concrete action. So they give a story of Patrick, our friend Patrick. His dad took him to work with him. And he knew, you know, we've talked about Patrick before. He's the voiceover actor. Yeah. You know, they really saw that he could focus a lot on negative feelings and attitudes and failures. And so his dad took him to work with him at a construction site because he needed Patrick to see that even adults make a lot of mistakes. You know, when he was drilling, the drill went straight through the wood and he had to repair it. Or he said, sometimes the drill will break and you have to fix the drill. And he wanted to show Patrick, you know, mistakes happen. You fix them, you move on, you learn from them. And, you know, Patrick just had this feeling that he was different from other people, that other people know what they're doing, always do things right, but that he always makes mistakes and fails. He had an idea that if he started working somewhere, he would just become embarrassed. He wouldn't do things right. And his dad showed him, sometimes we make mistakes, but when you start a job, they teach you how to do it. It's just your job to pay attention, learn how to do it. And then remember how to do it and continue doing it the right way. That's it. And I think sometimes that's the way you need to teach kids on the spectrum things is just kind of taking things one step at a time, you know? Don't worry. Don't put yourself into the future where you're failing at this job. Just say, first I need to apply for the job. Then they'll train me. You know, what are all the steps that are going to lead you to success? You don't have to just dwell on those feelings of failure. Yeah, it does seem like parents these days are more eager to prevent their child from struggling or feeling the pain of failure. I saw that a lot in IEP meetings, right, where the parents really did seem to underestimate their children's abilities, basically. Like, in order to learn a new skill, you have to struggle and fail before you get good at it. So I liked uh, Patrick's dad's story kind of about how struggling gets you where you want to be. You know, you have to. That's what builds grit and determination and perseverance. Yeah. So then they go into a hope theory for raising children with challenges. And this comes from psychologist Charles Snyder. He was a researcher who was really fascinated by the concept of hope. He outlined two pathways to hope. First, that it's built on setting realistic goals, which kids with autism need a lot of help with. And then the second pathway is to figure out how to go about achieving your goals. 
This can be challenging for people with autism who have a more inflexible way of thinking and can rarely see alternatives. So if they see a pathway towards their goal and then there's some kind of obstacle in the road, it's hard. It could be hard to come up with alternative ways to get there. So that's where they really need that support from adults who can help them see alternate paths. Parents and other adults in their lives need to take them out into the world, show them lots of different educational and work environments. And the authors give examples of taking them to the local community college, like we said, scheduling a meeting with the disability officer or a counselor, walking the campus, going to the bookstore. And you can also schedule meetings with people who work in different fields that might be interesting to your child. Because a child won't be interested in something unless they can clearly see that it's a means to a goal. So when you're teaching a child with autism how to do something or trying to change a behavior, they're not going to be interested in doing it unless they can clearly see that it's a means to a goal. You have to spell it out for them so that they get why you're doing it or why they need to do it. And they need a reason for changing that behavior and you need to link it to one of their special interests. So Temple gave three examples of things she did that she didn't like. She even said she hated, (laughs) but because she could see that they were related to a goal that she cared about, she was able to accomplish them. So the first was that in order to graduate from college, which she needed to reach her goals, she needed to take an English literature class, which she anticipated hating and then ended up really liking. The second was she was working on a project and she needed a piece of lumber, but she had a real fear of going to stores by herself. And her mom pushed her, wouldn't go with her, wouldn't accompany her. She, The mom knew that this project was important enough to Temple that she would find a way to do it. And she did. She went to that store. She got the piece of lumber and completed her project. The last example was that she didn't really take care of her hygiene or her appearance, but she desperately wanted a job at a feedlot, and she couldn't reach that goal without cleaning up. She ended up learning basic hygiene skills, and she created a routine. It became a habit, and she has kept it to this day. But they do mention that Temple Grandin still chooses her own unique Western clothing and that your child can be eccentric and still make it in the world by operating within the balance of acceptable appearance, which that's what it's all about. Celebrating uniqueness, but helping these kids to... There's room for them to be their unique self while also, I think, appreciating sort of like society's guidelines a little bit. Yeah. And you know... Things like hygiene, this is something every kid has to learn. Go into an eighth grade class right after they've been in PE. Yeah, I mean, hygiene, it's a different beast. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I know special ed teachers try to make a point to talk to their kids about hygiene and deodorant and stuff like that. But it can be a real barrier, like kids in high school who want to be talking to girls or want to be making friends. And it's like people don't even want to stand close to you because you smell bad. Yeah. Or your breath is stinky. You know, these are things that can really result in a lot of miscommunications and confusion. And it's such a simple fix. But there are certain things where you just have to play by the rules of the game. That is what it is. Yes. Well put. It is important for parents and other adults to introduce new things to kids with autism. And a lot of times something that a child might expect to hate or be bored by turns into something that they really like. And this can lead to magic. They point out 
that few of us ever achieve our goals on a straight, smooth path. We always encounter obstacles along the way. We have to retreat, rethink, revise our plans, and we might even need to make major changes. But you have to believe in yourself during periods of ambiguity and keep moving forward. But this is really difficult for an autistic brain because the neural pathways are highly focused and deeply channeled. So shifting course and having unexpected things pop up can literally be painful to a kid with autism. So when an obstacle does pop up, they might just freeze. They can't automatically search for alternative pathways. Like I said before, it can become really overwhelming emotionally and cognitively. So depression and anxiety could set in or they could retreat or announce that they'll never try something again because they'll never succeed. And adults need to just calmly listen to a child's fears without offering solutions or trying to fix Mm. it. Again, whole brain child. (laughs) Like I just thought about that connection. So if a kid experiences a big failure and they're really upset, that's not the time to be giving them a bunch of advice, offering alternatives. I think that the better thing would just be to listen empathetically. And then they say, you know, you can gently ask questions, get a greater sense of the negative beliefs that might have kicked in. And then they just need some time for the emotional arousal to diminish. Give them space and time so they can calm down. But don't succumb to this stage and let your child give up if they have a goal in mind that they're trying to reach because you'll be sabotaging hope right and you can't let their fears and setbacks stop them from continuing to plan and take action so they gave an example if a child gets fired from a job and they're thinking that they don't ever want to try to get a job again because they'll always be fired just focusing on that like negative on that failure and you need to step in a little bit and support and guide. So find out why they were fired. You know, maybe that means you have to call their work and get the reason. Don't take their word for it. You need to find out directly because if it's a skill that they could work on to have success at a future job, that's really important. Yeah. And then you can set specific goals so that you can measure success. So set goals with your child and work towards getting another job or keeping a job in the future. They say you can only have high levels of hope if you have been through adversity. The author says that the house of hope, oh, I love this. Mm -hmm. The house of hope is built brick by brick, calamity upon hardship, upon mishap, upon mistake. So with each trial that our children go through, they have the opportunity to develop their resilience, skills, flexibility, and adaptability. Then they give a great example of Patrick and his voiceover coach. The voiceover coach, I think her name's Cammy, right? Yes. She gives him just the right amount of push for him to succeed and have hope. He said that if he's pushed too hard, he just shuts down, but she knows how to do it the right way. And she says that she had a friend with a son who had Asperger's, so she already kind of knew that she needed to challenge him, but in a really specific, loving way. And she does push him like a Hollywood director would because she wants him to be prepared for that, but explains to him that that's what's needed and gives the reasons why. They gave a specific story about her wanting him to do a voice from Kung Fu Panda and initially him just saying, no, I won't be able to do it. It's a totally different type of voice than me. It's a different age. And then with push and persistence, he was able to do it and even maybe did it better than the professional who voiced it in the movie. So he ended up having this thing he was really proud of where at first when he was faced with it, he almost shut down like, nope, not going to do it. Can't do it. Yeah, it seems like a main trait that these mentors and teachers have in common is their patience with working with children on the spectrum. Like, 
Patrick's voiceover coach, Cammie, you know, she sounds like she really gave him the patience, the time, but also kept her high expectations and her high standards that he really needs to meet if he's going to thrive in this industry. So I just love hearing these stories of people who just naturally know how to help these kids. And I mean, what a great fit that he found a voiceover coach who was so willing to start slow and build up at his level and his pace. And there's also a really nice picture on page 51 of Patrick doing his voiceover thing. He looks so sweet. Yeah, I love all the pictures of Patrick. Patrick is really the star. This book should have been called Patrick's Journey. (laughs) (laughs) How Patrick was pushed to success. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so then they give a story of Martha. And Martha is our 57-year-old clerk in the science department at a college. Yes. And first... She's kind of telling her history in the workforce, and she says that she always tended to bond more easily with people from foreign countries and that she did not know that this is typical of people on the spectrum. Had you heard this before? It was fascinating. (laughs) No. And I read that line like maybe two times because I was like, wow. There's so much information there, and I never have even thought of that. I know. I want to look into it. I mean, it's like we were saying, kids on the spectrum bond very strongly with adults a lot of the time. Yeah. People from the maybe like a language barrier. (laughs) I think, honestly, my, my first thought is that it has something to do with the cultural difference. Like if you're from a different culture, maybe even like the language is similar. I don't know. Let's take that equation or that, that's let's take that variable out of the equation. Somebody probably doesn't know all the nuances of American culture of how we relate to each other, what's socially acceptable and what's not. And so a lot of these teens on the spectrum or even young adults, maybe they don't even really have a hang of like what's socially acceptable and what's not. So maybe if you think about it, they're at the same level. Okay, yeah. Or they can learn together or, you know, maybe it even puts the person on the spectrum kind of at an advantage for once in a social communication because they can teach them something or they can kind of be the expert instead of always feeling like they're falling short. Yeah, that's interesting. So Martha's example of overcoming adversity is really interesting. She started her career. She went into the foreign services for the American embassy because of this inclination towards interacting with foreign people, (laughs) people from other countries. She ended up in New Zealand and she ended up getting some bad reviews from her first boss, which again, you know, this is kind of we've heard from a few of the people in this book. It was a little confusing to her. She had the feeling that she was smarter than him and that he didn't like that she could do the job better. And then she also thinks that it was something with her social skills. But, you know, it's kind of a theme where when they do get a bad review, some of these adults have a little bit of trouble interpreting what exactly happened, right? Sure. So then she was transferred to Poland and there were a lot of things going on there, uh, bit of an uprising. There were tanks, Mm. you know, driving right by the office. She ended up having what she calls a nervous breakdown and needing to be medically evacuated back to Mm. the U.S. So she finished out her contract in Washington, D.C. And then she went to school for medical transcription and she got a bunch of temp jobs. And eventually she ended up doing clerical work in the science department at the college. And she's mentioned that A 
along the way, a lot of the jobs she had, she thinks now that some of the people she interacted with were also on the spectrum, which is interesting. She even says that some of the professors that she works with now, she believes are on the Mm -hmm. spectrum. But, you know, eventually she just found this job that was a really great fit for her, where she feels like she's part of a family. And it just shows Martha's the one that didn't have a ton of family support growing up right but you can tell there's something in her where she was she just kept pushing herself right she did have influential adults throughout her teens and early adulthood but she overcame a lot yeah she definitely seems more self-motivated yeah because what she went through sounds really hard if I were to take a job in another country and go there on my own, and then have Mm. a negative review, just that would tear me down so much. I would be so depleted. Then to move to another foreign country where you don't speak the language probably, and then go through something really traumatic. And she did have some go through depression and a lot of anxiety, but she really just pushed and pushed and pushed until she found the right thing for her. Yeah, I really appreciate her perseverance because that definitely sounds like a really tough go. Yeah. So Adrian, did you find something about? <laughs> yeah. So I decided to do a little research just now on people with autism getting along better with people from foreign countries. And what I found, I mean, this is sort of anecdotal. I don't see any like evidence to support this. Many people with Asperger's are more comfortable with foreigners because any misunderstandings or breaches of etiquette can be attributed to cultural differences rather than the lack of social fitness on the part of the person on the spectrum so that sort of is what we were talking about like it's kind of easier to cover up okay yeah and that's what you said interesting we learned something very new (laughs) reading this yeah yeah so then the last story we have in this chapter is Jaime and he's the one that works as a business analyst for a large tech company. And he had mentioned before he wasn't great at high school. He just did enough to get by. But in college, he realized he was really going to have to buckle down, learn the things that he was being taught in class. So he started reading, really memorizing things and giving himself practice problems, which is like he's really taking the initiative to make sure the information sunk in. Definitely. And then he learned how to code and he got jobs in coding when he was out of college. And then at the big tech company that he works for now, when he interviewed, it turned out that the person interviewing him was married to someone with Asperger's. Mm -hmm. And she saw in him the potential because she knew that he might have skills that other people wouldn't have. And she really ended up being a mentor to him. And he's been really successful at that job. Yay. So love a success. These are our three little stories (laughs) of yeah, either pushing themselves or getting that gentle push from someone in their life. This chapter was really just about not letting challenges get in the way of your child's dreams. Also not letting them just become complacent and keeping things the way they are always helping them to see that if they want to reach their goals, they might have to change things or they might have to change themselves a little bit to keep moving forward. Yeah. All right, Adrian, that is it for chapter three of The Loving Push. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. And we will see you next time when we discuss chapter four. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast. It's a community. 
Go to facebook.com slash groups slash the SLP book club to join the discussion after each episode. Want even more of the SLP book club? We've made all the resources for this book, including chapter summaries and visuals, available for free on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the SLP book club to download these great materials. To learn more about the SLP book club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at SLP underscore book club. Find us on TikTok at the SLP book club. 